right? The year was 2009. Who was born then? I'm kidding, but sort of. Anyone born in 2009? Don't tell me. You're like, I was four. Cool. <laughs> um, Avatar had just been released. And uh, do you remember Avatar? It now looks weird, but at the time, it was phenomenal. We were all, I wasn't allowed to see it for spiritual reasons, I'm sure, but uh, it was out there. And uh, you should know, in 2009, Blackberries were still acceptable cellular devices. Uh, you don't know, some of you are like, what's a Blackberry? I love the fruit. And I, that's not what it is. I was 20-something years old. I mean, barely even walking. And... Um, and I was finishing up my spring semester of seminary, and he was going to Alaska for the summer, and I was counting down the seconds. <laughs> he said we'd only be able to write because he was on a fishing boat, and uh, so there would be no like phone communication or text communication. Um, so this would be the only way that we could communicate. And it had been five years straight of loving him, more than I had ever loved anyone else. He was funny and handsome, and we spoke the same language, like really. And he loved Jesus and the church, which is like numero uno for me. Uh, you know, attraction's important, but that helps. And uh, he was smarter than me. And I prefer people who are smarter than me, believe it or not, which is a big task, you know, I mean. Uh, he also drove, I feel like this population will appreciate this, he drove a white Chevy Silverado. Yes, which obviously was a massive bonus to everything I just mentioned. He was thoughtful. And he didn't have to say a word, and I knew what he was thinking. It was that kind of relationship and that kind of depth and intimacy. He was my best friend. And we were supposed to get married. That was the plan. But uh, he didn't choose me. Uh, while I was in Alaska, he started writing uh, a letter to a woman he had met earlier and um, had already sort of started fiddling around with. And ultimately, he ended up marrying her a year later. And uh, it was complicated, I and mean, that's like a light word for it, and messy. Uh, and it ranks up there as one of the most impactful and devastating things relationally that has happened to me. And I've had my full fair share. And, and here's the worst part. So you're like, that's, I feel sad for her. Good. Uh, yes. Thank you. Forget him, you know. <laughs> I hope you're happy. <laughs> just, he is happy anyway. <laughs> um, and I'm glad. Um, I really felt like God was in it, you know. I felt like God was really in it, like he was speaking in it. And I thought, even on our worst days, and he's in Alaska on a fishing boat, I thought, God's going to change him. He is. And, and then he's going to bring us together because he did this to start with. And um, at the time, when it all kind of hit the fan, I thought, and this is part of my story, I had already lost my mom. I thought, how in the world am I going to lose him too? Now, this was one experience, and I've had a few but um, it's not unique to me, because we've all experienced this reality in some way or another. And if you haven't experienced something similar, it, it will happen at some point. And it will happen not just to us, but to those that we love, too. We'll hear stories. Uh, we do. We hear them all the time of people who get cancer diagnoses or marriages that are ending or people that are dying, lives and destinies that are changing in a moment. And still, maybe you've only known it on smaller terms. Maybe it's just been like the loss of a job or maybe you didn't get the house that you were trying to get or um, you didn't get to keep the friend after all. And still, it's disruptive and still meant that something was actually breaking. Life is so weird. And in my 29 years on this earth, uh, they get it because it's just 30 and a few. Uh, it's weird. Life is weird. And then it's filled with stories just like these. I get to do ministry all the time. It is a weird circus out there. I mean, people are nuts. You think they're nuts at a certain point, and then they get weirder. And it's only getting worse, you know? Things that we thought would be or should be are falling to pieces, shattering right in front of our eyes. Dreams turned into radical disappointments. Destinies disrupted. And us frantically and impulsively trying to impress and persuade God but feeling as though nothing changes, relenting, I think, only to beg for blessing. Life is hard, and the truth is, life in the kingdom of God is no exception. And again, I'll be here to bless and encourage you all day long tonight. Disappointments or shattered dreams are powerful, and if you've been around a bit, you know they come in many different forms. First, uh, there are those dreams that you didn't even know you had <laughs> that get shattered. You know, those dreams that you only uh, know exist when they fall apart. 
I think about life with my mom, and uh, there's a backstory here. My mom left our family when I was 14, and yeah, 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 she's back in my life. God's done good work. But I remember I thought about life with my mom, and um, for so long I believed that that was just a given. You know, everyone gets a mom, and, um, and that having my mom around uh, was something I didn't have to think of or dream up, but something that was or should have been guaranteed only to realize <laughs> when I was 14, that my dream for a mother and a family and a life had been broken by what wasn't. Or maybe for you, it it was a longing or an expectation you had in a relationship that you didn't know was there until it didn't get met. Um, These dreams are creepy. They are subtle and often the most impactful because they come out of nowhere. We weren't expecting them. Sometimes they just come like, like sweep waves and get us and often leave us breathless in their wake. Now, there are those other dreams that look different than you expected, um, and those also disappointing. Uh, Maybe you saw a dream that you had realized, but it wasn't all that you had imagined it would be. Maybe you had a dream, maybe it was a specific job or a relationship or relationship status or a goal, and once you achieved it, it left you wanting. It didn't satisfy. It didn't feel the way you expected it to, and it certainly didn't bring the joy you were counting on. And you're left feeling like, what was I even after? And is this the best that I get? Next, there are those dreams that actually come to fruition and are good until those dreams shatter. You finally get in the reality of the dreams that you've had, but at some point something gives way and those dreams disappear. Whether it be through the actions of another or yours, the dream comes crashing down. And the bitterness of loss feels all-consuming and confusing And you ask yourself, who is this God who would give a dream only to take it away? Finally, there are those dreams that don't actually happen. These are the dreams that you pray for and you hope for and you trust for on your best day and you believe for more and more only to realize that you have yet to see them come true. The waiting gets long and there are moments where hope gets lifted and then let down again and disappointment clouds any prospect of the dream being fulfilled and you're left asking, will it ever come to be? Dreams, while innate to the human condition, are mysterious in nature. They pull on the longings of our heart, while at the same time, they evoke wonder and imagination and faith. And they're not simply constructed, they're birthed. Dreams are either birthed from within us or from God, and sometimes both. And these realities create a tension oftentimes. Because if we in our image-bearing are able to dream, as God does, then we will also knowingly or not carry the responsibility of seeing that dream fulfilled. At the same time, if a dream is birthed from God, then we will hold him responsible. And the truth is, regardless if you're anything like me and most humans, if we follow Jesus, we probably will hold God responsible in either of these camps. Which begs the question... What happens when God doesn't measure up? Or another way to say this is what happens in the way we view and love and trust God when our dreams are shattered, when we are disappointed in God? Disappointment is powerful. It has the ability to not only humiliate but debilitate us more than most things do. And it doesn't just hurt you or me. It's a multifaceted reality. It turns both inwards, so it kind of moves in on who we are and also outward towards other people, including God. So what do we do if disappointment is the mortal enemy of hope? Where do we go from there? I mean, this is a real experience that many of us are having. Maybe we don't like to talk about it because it's uncomfortable and maybe I'm not trusting God. Whatever kind of bull crap you're hearing, I mean, whatever that is, I think a lot of that's the enemy. But we all experience this reality. Where do we go from here when hope is not present? How do we trust a sometimes what feels like disappointing and seemingly fickle God who fails to do what even the worst friends that we have would do? And that's the question we're going to try to answer tonight. So turn with me in your Bibles to Ruth chapter 1. Now here's the deal. We don't have time to walk all the way through this text, believe it or not. Now if you want to be here for three hours, we can go. We'll dig deep. Some of you are ready for church tonight. Others are less faithful. I can't speak to to that. This is your house, Alex, but yeah, I mean, kidding. And I don't want to. (laughs) I don't want to do that. I want to have dinner too. Um, So you're going to have to bear with me. We're going to fly through this text. Is that okay? We're just going to jive together. Is that what the kids say? 
I joke. I'm 29. I know what kids say. You say what? Vibe. 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 No jive. I think I'm doing like a rumba. All right. Chapter 1. We're going to pick up in verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. All right, right out the gate, we get introduced to a family, so don't freak out. Just a family. Specifically, we like to call this Naomi's family. And this is a family from Bethlehem who, because of a famine, migrated or became refugees in a town called Moab. So there's a husband, Elimelech, a wife, Naomi, two sons, Malon and Kilion, and they are living in this land of Moab, a pagan uh, place. And despite having to relocate, we see that Naomi's family actually flourishes. You don't have time, but you can read it in your quiet time tomorrow morning because I know you're doing two-hour quiet time. Whatever it is that you're doing with the Lord, that's great. You can read the rest of the story, but they actually flourish. While her husband died, we read on, her two sons found love and married two Moabite women. So that's good news, which for Naomi would actually mean her future was secure. So we've got Naomi, family, husband dies while they're in Moab, which sometimes happens um, in in situations like that. Uh, But she has two sons, and they're going to take care of her. And this is good news. So she's secure. And I think, I think from the text, and you're going to have to trust me on a lot of things tonight. I'm very well-versed in this. I think it's fair to say that Naomi was a happy woman. She had husband and kids and family, and she had what a woman in her time would long for and consider success. While happiness obviously isn't the goal of life, it certainly is a blessing when we feel it, and it is in fact necessary if we're to find hope. Now, if you don't uh, know, Naomi's happiness is short-lived. Look at verse 5. Both Malon and Kilion also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. Here we read that these two sons of hers died in a period of about 10 years. Historically, we know this. We read that Naomi lost not only her husband, but both of her sons. And in that, you should understand, her whole life, which means she was left with nothing. Culturally, she had absolutely no future and no real hope. How would she live? Men were the the caretakers in that day. They were the ones who provided financially and physically, and with them gone, she had no one. Who would take care of her? Now, I want us to think for a minute about the world she was living in, and not just the world, but the spiritual climate she was in. She was a Jew by birth, and so she would have heard stories about Yahweh her whole life, Yahweh, this God of salvation, Yahweh, the warrior who destroyed nations and conquered peoples. And yet, where was her salvation? Or was she simply another life to be destroyed? Whatever she was feeling, it seems that Yahweh did nothing to preserve the dreams of Naomi. We don't read that she wrote a self-help book uh, around the loss of her husband and kids. We don't read that, that while she was devastated, she found joy in it all. No, in fact, it seems it was quite the opposite. Now, chapter one wraps up with Naomi in just this deep well of despair. We see her become destroyed, even to the point of belief that other people would be better off without her. She had lost all hope of a return to her earlier blessings, and we read that she believed that the tragedies were God's doing. Not that any of us could relate. But we see that in her place of despair, she returns to a town called Bethlehem, and she does so with a slightly clingy but wonderful daughter-in-law named Ruth. And they arrive, uh, last verse of chapter 1, just as the barley harvest was beginning, and the church said amen. (laughs) What? Now... This line, uh, at least uh, from an, um, an author's perspective, was meant to spark hope in the hearts of us, the readers. While his work was not visible, this was to indicate to us that Yahweh was actually up to something. Alive with her pain, we see that Naomi refused to deaden or numb what was happening inside. She grieves, and she does so as long as it takes, something very, very, very few of us know how to do. Now, upon their arrival to Bethlehem, we find her desperate. Everything about her circumstances is actually dire. But we see that it was in her her desperation where she discovered desire. And desire is the birthplace of dreams. In chapter 2, we find Ruth, scrappy as ever, this is her daughter-in-law, asked for permission to go to the fields to provide for her family, and with Naomi's blessing, she naively does so. 
And in verse 3 of chapter 2, we read that this field that she goes to to kind of glean food, because listen, they're extremely poor, two women living in Bethlehem with no relatives, no one to help them, at least from a masculine perspective, which was really essential in day. No one to help them. So she's going to a field, and as it turns out, we read, this field belonged to a man named Boaz, who was a distant cousin of Naomi's husband, which means he was family. And notice Naomi's response to Ruth when she found this out. Look at chapter 2, verse 19. Her mother-in-law asked, where did you glean today, sweetie? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Then Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one at whose place she had been working. The name of the man I worked, for, or worked with today is Boaz, she said. The Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. She added, that man is our close relative. He is one of our guardian redeemers. Now, I want you to notice how Ruth tells Naomi's, Naomi about Boaz's kindness. That word that she uses there in the Hebrew is hesed which refers to a strongly bonded relationship where one party continues to be faithfully involved with another because it is in the character of the first party to do so. The kindness we see here supersedes pleasantries or um, decorum. It communicates something greater. It communicates that Yahweh's kindness wasn't dead, that God could resurrect her family. It just may not be the way she had imagined it. Next. Notice this language about Boaz being a guardian redeemer. We don't use that language anymore, but it, I feel like I'm open to bringing it back. Uh, this language that references their family line, that's what this is, and it's an expression and reference of honor given to the living and the dead. It also meant that this unlikely of men had the power to change her circumstances. That's the short version. And it's here that we see God's kindness emerging with a new dream. Yes, Naomi had been stripped of her happiness, but it was in that place that she was being prepared for something new, something better, and there was joy. Now, I think it's only fair that we ask, why was Naomi able to see God's hand when he began to move in her life? Because when we're in circumstances like that, we're not very good at that. Would you agree? Okay, I'm not. I'm like, I'm pissed, and when I'm, I mean, it's, there's a blessing here with this. A lot of fire, a lot of fun. <laughs> but a lot of attitude and a lot of strength and resolve. And, uh, and so it's dangerous for me to get in circumstances like this. And yet we see Naomi, who was probably not a redhead, but according to Fiddler on the Roof, it's possible. Uh, we see her see God's hand in her life, especially uh, in, in such a unique way. Now, my best guess here, and this is, I'm no scholar, is that she was faithful to embrace the realities of her heart, good, bad, and ugly feeling all its pain and eventually found herself face to face with the truest and deepest desires of her heart. Not just the strongest desires, but the deepest. And we see that her deepest desire was Yahweh and his will for her life. People who deaden their pain and disappointment and loss rarely discover their real desires. And Naomi's life testifies to that. Look at chapter three. You're doing great. Some of you are like, how long is this book? 25 chapters. Buckle. I'm just kidding. In chapter 3, we meet Naomi again, but this time, she's a different woman. Look at verse 1. One day, Ruth's mother-in-law Naomi said to her, My daughter, I must find a home for you where you will be provided for. Now, Boaz, uh, with, whose, with whose women you have worked, is a relative of ours. Tonight, he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor, something I said to a friend last night. Wash also said this, and put on perfume and get dressed in your best clothes. Helpful advice, family. <laughs> then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. Also good advice. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying. Not good advice. Then go <laughs> and uncover his feet and lie down. Don't do that. He will tell you what to do. Full of faith and tenacity. This is a big deal. Naomi devises a plan. Sure, easy for you, Naomi. No big deal. Ever been on the back end of a setup? These people so confident, like, you're going to love it. It's going to be great. You know, you're like, oh, God, it's very bad. What does he look like? Does he speak? What's happening? What? Anyway, uh, seven flashbacks. Now, Naomi has a plan, like any good mother-in-law, and I think is beginning to see how this season may be changing. 
So she tells Ruth to go to Boaz and propose marriage. That's what that means. That's exactly what that is, which is kind of intense. Talk about risk and talk about boldness. Naomi, seemingly more fierce and profoundly more hopeful, leads her daughter-in-law into a space of demanding God's goodness. So Ruth does just that, shockingly. And Boaz says in so many terms, yeah, yes, I'll do it. But there are legal matters to address first. And with the responsibility of Ruth's marriage to Boaz in jeopardy of what must have seemed to Ruth uh, an obscure legal technicality, Naomi says to her, wait, wait, my daughter, the man won't rest until the matter, matter is settled today. Naomi, in this beautiful place of surrender, Boaz and Yahweh both had to settle the matter. The rest was in their hands, which freed her up to be released to be a powerful presence in someone else's life. This is, too, a picture of how she was with Yahweh. And isn't that how it usually works when we, through our despair, begin to discover within ourselves new desires? We, too, find God there, simultaneously revealing his desires for us. First, we're reduced to an exhilarating, I think, in my at least summation of it all, an exhilarating humility to an interior and silencing darkness that somehow lets God see in the richest of ways. But it's also from that place that we begin to see him in ways that release us to worship and love even when our dreams are shattered. Now abandoned to God, we see Naomi gives us like this gorgeous picture of what it means to abandon ourselves to God and not just to do it, but to do it with confidence. And then we read that they waited. And I have to wonder, I mean, I'm a woman and you're men in here, we're all wondering. What must the waiting have been like? Was Ruth on the floor just like tossing her head back and forth? You know, like, do you think it's happening? Do you think he's talking to anyone? Does he, do you think he thinks I'm pretty? Do you think I should wear this weird shawl or whatever? Um, does he like me? What if the elders don't approve? What if I'm redeemed by another person? And this waiting is really significant because waiting is always a part of the process. It's always in this space where we like Ruth, can do nothing but rest and trust in the nature of the one and the only one who can fulfill our dreams. Finally, without further ado, our finale happens. And yes, Boaz gets the girl, but Naomi gets the dream. And the people rejoice. Everything in Naomi's life reveals a few things to us. First, this story, her life, reveals that shattered dreams often open the door to even better dreams. Dreams that we do not properly value until the dreams that we improperly valued are destroyed. Shattered dreams destroy our false expectations, such as the victorious Christian life with no struggle or failure, but they also help us discover true hope. And we often need the help of shattered dreams to put us in touch with what we most long for, to create a felt appetite for better dreams, for kingdom dreams. And living for the better dream is actually generates a new unfamiliar feeling that we will eventually recognize as joy. True, holy, prophetic joy. From Naomi's life, we, we know that shattered dreams, if we let them reveal God's dreams, and by the way, they're always better than your own. We are so arrogant to think that we know better that our dreams are better. I love to tell God what to do. It's a signature thing of my life. I'm constantly saying, I have the best ideas. Just ask me. Good Lord, the timing on this is bad. Let me help you, help me. Um, and we're wrong. That's straight up pride and idolatry. That's worship of self over my submission and surrender to God. They reveal God's dreams. Our shattered dreams open up almost like cracking an egg to reveal something better. And it also reveals in us where our trust and our affection and our hope lie. In the kingdom, nothing is guaranteed. But the one thing we get to be certain about is the king himself. And that's enough. It's sufficient. It's all that we need. Shattered dreams demand a revolution then in our understanding of why we're alive at all a shift of perspective off the circumstances onto a greater reality. It forces us to reckon with God that he keeps us living in this world. This is what he's done before he takes us to heaven. There's something he's after. All of our motivations are to feel now what we will one day feel in heaven. And shattered dreams demand resolve from heaven. 
and a reconciliation of God's dreams with our own. Which means in, in our shattered dreams, we're going to have to confront some stuff, which is our favorite. But it is what we call sanctification in the church. Shattered dreams expose what we're actually after. Expose the idols of our hearts. When all the happiness is stripped away, when dreams shatter, when we're simply left with our desires for resolution, we actually find the clarity around the desire itself, and that's what God's after. There's an exposure that's healthy for us in the kingdom of God. So often we think, oh, it's not a big deal. I don't have to do that deep work. You do have to do the deep work to understand the reality, not of yourself, who gives a crap about the king himself, to whom you're yielded. I mean, I care, and God cares, and people care, but not as much as we care about him. We get caught up here, and we miss all this. This is such a, I'm just preoccupied. You're so special. It's all about you. Everyone, no, they don't. No, they don't. And it doesn't really matter. The glory of God comes when I'm looking here and yielded here and leaning here. Let it expose you for the purpose of God being able to shine through you, illuminate truth and life through you. This isn't life. It's an illusion. It's a, it's a little fabricated reality. It's a copycat of what is really taking place. Exposure, the exposure that comes with shattered dreams especially, and hear me, it is humiliating. But it is always the humiliation of the flesh that brings the exaltation of the spirit. And that's what we're after as God's people. Next, I believe it helps us discover our true hope. They force us, our shattered dreams, to identify a hope that has to do with something truly wonderful. When the dark night descends and we see nothing but pain and disappointment in this life, a hope that does exactly the same thing when the sky is sunny. The hope here is that we would discover in the brokenness of our dreams, the disappointment of our life, a hope that supersedes our circumstances. Paul talked all about this. Go read it. It's interesting. It's hard to understand. Um, a lot of run-on sentences, Paul. Yeah. Uh, but here he is. He's talking a bunch about this true hope and what it actually is and how we carry it. Hebrews, true hope, how we carry it, what it means, what's it revealed. It has to be burned up. It has to be purified in order for us to know what it is. And shattered dreams reveal that. Where is your hope? What are you placing it in? And if it's not in the person of Jesus himself, it will be disappointing. And guess what? It won't be real hope. We've, we've called a lot of things hope. Him calling you is not hope. You're not hoping for the right thing. Hope is something deeper. It transcends to a deeper part of our persons. And what responds from a place of hope is deeper yieldedness and true worship. And that's what he's after. Next, I think that shattered dreams teach us to receive what we cannot do for ourselves. One of the best lessons a disciple of Jesus can learn. There's a lot of things we, again, think in our arrogance we can do ourselves. Even by virtue of disappointment, I am primo at this. I am a queen at this, and he's not impressed. I mean, I've come out dazzling. It's like I'm wearing cowboy boots and like a sequin outfit. When I'm like, God disappointed me, but I'm going to get him. Hey, look, you know, like, I can do this, you know. And I mean, it doesn't look like that. It's not like that. But... It is a little like that, where I come at God after things have been really disappointing, and I go, look, I'm going to help you. I'm going to show you, look, I'm worth it. And he's going, that's an old lie from Satan himself. He came after your life with that from a young age, and he did, to tell me I wasn't worth it and I was disposable. That's what people do. Mothers dispose of you. So that's, that's who you are. And so this is the place where we just begin to wrestle, and, and I just go, look, but if I can prove to you that I'm worth it. He said, you're bringing a lie into my house. That's not who you are. So you can't bring, those two things can't exist in my house. You've been perfectly loved and adored every day of your life. That's it. That's the truth. So when we start to bring our crap in there, we actually are able to receive the things we're supposed to receive. If he met me and said like, oh, you look so sweet, sweetie. Yeah, maybe I'll give you what you want. Look how cute. <laughs> She's a doll. Like maybe I'll change my mind or whatever's going on. That's not real life. That's going to suffocate me and kill me in the end because it's agreeing with a lie. And he's not going to do it. He's coming for something greater in my life. When shattered dreams happen, it's an exposing place for us to actually lean into the presence of God and say, I'm going to agree with the things of heaven about who I am. The truth that God has said about me, even though everything about this circumstance, everything about this man who didn't choose me told me that, that I was exactly what I had thought, disposable, worthless, unlovely, unlovable, just not quite enough which has also been the narrative. Just not, you had almost, you had a lot of good things. He liked a lot. 
but not enough to choose you. If I had leaned into that space and agreed with that lie, my life would be totally different than it is today. But it was in the wrestling that God said, I'm going to say something different to you about you. It's going to take a while for it to get in, but you're able to receive something here in the shattered dream that you couldn't receive otherwise. And that's the power of it. Next, I believe shattered dreams again reveal God's dream for us. Often the shattering of our dreams gives, ways to, gives way to God's dream. That's not to say our dreams are bad. They're just too small. And that's how it works. We're cute, trying. We're just throwing things up to heaven all the time. Like, God, I got this idea. The church is going to be radical because of it. It's like, get out of here. He's probably like, oh, cute. <laughs> Did you see that? I mean, no, he's not. He really loves us. And he's probably like, that is awesome. Good effort. <laughs> you know? And I'm like, yeah, it's so good. Like, I'm going to help everybody. And he's like, okay. No, you're not, sweetie. Anyway, he's going to help. He's helping us to go, baby, it's too small. Just too small. I was telling... Um, a friend, I was telling Heidi, but I was also telling another friend this week that I've just always wanted to live on acreage, you know, because I'm from God's country down south. And I just want to have babies that run with their diapers on all over and are kind of dirty. That's just like my dream, you know. And even though it's a grandiose dream, and it is, and I'm thinking, okay, I'm in the land here. I'm in the valley. I didn't know I was in a valley, but cool. This is how I don't understand Oregon. I'm like, we're in a valley. I turn to Heidi, I'm like, we're in a valley. Oh, it's awesome. That dream is way too small in the kingdom of God. I sat across, actually from this man I'm talking about tonight, on Friday. And um, he just said this was much bigger than us. And, and there's a lot more to that. But it was much bigger. My dream for my life, if I had said yes to marrying him a long time ago, would have looked really different than what it's been. I would not be, and I'm not saying God couldn't do other things. He can. He's just great like that. He's merciful like that. But um, I'm in this house because of the shattered dreams in my life. And I'm leaning into more of who God's made me to be because of that reality. We don't fear them. We embrace them. We allow them to reveal in us and to us God's dream for our life. And sometimes, hear me, that takes time. I didn't know it for years. I just didn't know what God had for me. And I still don't. There's a huge part of my life I'm like, what the heck, man? <laughs> okay, love God, everybody. But what the heck, man? You know? And that's, we're in the dance. We're married. No one's going anywhere. I'm here, but I don't want to talk to you sometimes. You know, you need to get your own lunch. And he's like, no problem. And I'm like, okay, man. <laughs> our humanity has such a unique way of limiting our ability to see what God really has for us. And we trust in it again far more than we should. So now for the big question. How do we, how do we move from this place of shattered dreams? I mean, I mean, practically. We're all coming to this conversation this evening from different places, and it's not an easy conversation. When dreams shatter, when disappointment aches within, when life comes crashing down, the question is, what do we do? And what do we do when we feel like God doesn't care about that? When we don't believe he hears us, when we cry out. And I mean, I'm the queen of this. From one dreamer to another, I can tell you that the road is not easy just like as a big blessing. It's not easy. So if it doesn't feel easy, that's right. But it is good. So it's one of those things. It's like it's not easy, but it is good. I mean, core to your life good. Resettling in who you are, Edenic good. And I believe it starts with an invitation. When you listen to these words from the, the writers of the scriptures, they say things like this, the Lord is near to those who are discouraged. He saves those who have lost all hope. He made me suffer a lot, but you will bring me back from this deep pit and you will give me new life. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned and the flame shall not consume you. I consider what we suffer at this present time cannot be compared at all to the glory that is going to be revealed to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. We are persecuted, but not forsaken. We are struck down, but we are not destroyed. Always carrying in the body, carrying in our body, the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our bodies. What do we do? Where do we start? 
we start by acknowledging him and the whole situation, felt or unfelt. Growing up in the, the family of God is difficult because sometimes you've got to do grown-up things. And part of that, most of the time, even tonight in worship, it's like you just show up and you just do it because you should. Now, I know, religion, I got it. Trust me, I'm like really good at all of it. I'm, prof I'm a professional. And so I have to do, uh, we do. If pastors are doing the right work, they're doing it harder than you are. Because we can walk in here and be like, schmooze, schmooze, love God, know the scriptures, do theology. I could do that with my eyes shut. So could Alex. We're, and we're charming. <laughs> I mean, you know, I could dazzle you. I mean, if with tap shoes and a few other things, I could really get this going. <laughs> so we actually, that's a true statement. Uh, we actually have to do a deeper work if we're going to be faithful to the people of God the way we've been called to be. We actually have to cultivate every time we enter into a church building a genuine connection and communion with God himself in order to be faithful to shepherd you with integrity and authenticity. So we have to grow up. The calling in the kingdom of God is hard. It means that we show up and we worship. And I, sometimes you'll watch me. I, if I, sometimes I put my hands on my body during worship to say to my body, you bless the Lord. You bless the Lord. You bless the Lord. And even if I go, he's not worthy of it. And that's what's happening, demonic or not. In my flesh, I'm going, no, but he hasn't been good to me. But he's taking this relationship from me. But he's taking this friendship. But they're still sick. And I will say to my body, bless the Lord. You bless the Lord. And whether I feel it or don't feel it, I have to acknowledge that he is still who he said he was. We're looking for a felt experience. Oh, I just need to feel that God's faithful to me. He doesn't have to prove himself to be who he is. He just doesn't. That again is a revealing of idolatry in our lives. It's our job to come under his leadership and go, you are who you say you are. I don't feel it, and I don't like it. But we're married, and I'm in it. And I'm showing up to this house, and I'm coming home every night, and I'm looking you in the face and going, where are you? And he's like, hey, good to see you again. And I'm getting things right, because he's not wrong ever. He is perfect in our relationship. I'm the broken one, but going like, you're bad. And he's like, okay. And then, you know, he's being patient with me. This is a covenant I'm in. It's not immovable. You're not going to like your spouse, rumor has it. I, I hope to like mine quite often. I mean, if I can get one, but I'm going to do it. If I, I'm going to do it this year. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. By faith, God, we pray that together as your people. <laughs> Sometimes you've got to move in the covenant you've entered into. Remember. Remember that. Remember who he says he is. And you know what you've got to do with this? I mean, you've got to get it in here. Because it's the thing that actually tells you what's true. I heard you were talking about being renewed in your mind. Get renewed in your mind with the actual words of God. Who is he? Is he like, like Naomi could have done? You're the God of salvation. You're the God who destroys nations. You're destroying me. We do that to him all the time. Instead of going, you are the Lord, the Sabaoth, the warrior who wages war against all evil in my life. Understanding who he really is actually resets the trajectory of our faith. And we do that by getting this word in us. So we acknowledge his presence whether we feel it or not. We show up and some of you just need to grow up in the house. You just show up and you do it. You just say to him, I love you, even if I don't feel like I love you. You don't always feel like you love everybody. Newsflash, you really don't. You're like, ah, you're annoying as crap or whatever today. And you're like, and that means real. And you're like, I don't feel love towards you, but I'm showing up to this relationship because you're here in the flesh. It's no different. And he, of all entities, deserves that. Has he not given you enough reason to trust him? Are you alive and upright? And even if you weren't, still be true because he can call you up out of that grave. Now, next, we got to come to him and bring our disappointment, which is also fun. You know, a lot of times you don't like to talk about it, and that's fine. You can do that for just a short time. I wouldn't give yourself too much leeway. Um, I have to cultivate, this is weird, and I'm going to share all this. Um, I have to cultivate spaces of uh, emotion to start getting stuff out. I'm a layered person, believe it or not. So dynamic. Yeah, it's really a mystery. Oh. Uh, <laughs> So if you know someone who's in their 30s, I'm just kidding, but they, yeah, it's like a mystery in here, but I'm actually layered in multi, multiple ways, especially because I have to do Jesus stuff for a job, and I love it, and I have worked my butt off at trying to be authentic in every moment, faithful to the people that way. But I sometimes have to cultivate spaces for God and I to really get stuff out. So I know, just like you know when things aren't perfect in a relationship, and someone needs to say something, but a lot of us are codependent, and... Um, we're like, no, 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 it's all good. It's all good. I hate you. You know, like, it's good. Don't touch me. <laughs> you know, like, no, no, sweetie, it's fine. I'm going to sleep in the other room. It's no big, whatever. It's like that with God. He's so good. Isn't he good? And you're like, yeah, but is he? 
I mean, really, I'm singing these songs going, I don't know. I am not going to say these words out loud to him unless I believe in my heart. Now, and I don't mean that like I'm waiting for a feeling. I just mean I've got to get some things reconciled in myself. So you know what I do? I have a slow jams Jesus list, playlist. I'm not joking. I got to get in my room. Even Friday, he's like, good, come away with me. We're going to have a talk. I'm like, I do not want to. That's not what I want to do. I just want to watch Grey's Anatomy and be faithful that way. <laughs> and God's like, no, because you're pissed at me. And I'm like, yes, I am. But I don't have to talk to you about it. It's just making it worse. What are you going to do? Because that's the spirit I'm in, you know? You, what are you going to do? I've already asked you to do something. You haven't done anything. He's like, no, you, I, you, I haven't done it your way or in your timing. That's actually the correction. So we will have a slow jams playlist, and I will sit on my floor in my house, the same place I write these weird teachings, and I will wait until I feel sad. I just wait. He's like, you got to do the work to get there. And you do, just sometimes you have to. Now, maybe yours isn't a playlist. Maybe you need to go drive until you just start freaking out in the car or whatever. I don't know what your thing is. You got to figure out who you are. This is an actual person you're in a relationship with. What does it take to do that? I have to cultivate spaces where I can actually be authentic and bring in my disappointment to God and going, you did it. You didn't do it. I mean, I have been begging you, petitioning you. I, this is the one thing, God. This is the one deliverance we were looking for, the one salvation. We needed this healing. And this is on multiple levels. It's not just my own. It's our family's level. I'm going, come on, man. Give them a baby. I mean, give them a baby. I've asked you so many times, give them a baby. What are you doing? <laughs> you open and close. I mean, this is how nuts I am. So what a joy it will be for a man to join me in this endeavor. <laughs> it will be fun. Right? And I mean that. I actually mean that. Good for him. <laughs> it's honesty before God. He can take it, man. Because his love for you is perfect. And his one MO is to be the perfect father and the perfect mother to you to absorb your pain and actually make it a redemptive reality right back at you. And I'll tell you what, I am screaming. I'm in my bed last night crying my brains out. I mean, I am. I got puffy eyes today to prove it. The mascara is looking chunky. I mean, it's the worst. <laughs> but here I am. I'm, last night, I'm, I'm crying, God, please. Like, I'm still feeling this pain in my heart about these certain things that are going on. God, please, just flowing. I'm like, oh, watch this movie on Netflix. Bad idea. Crying, but I was like, okay, you want to do it now? Let's do it then, you know? And so I start going with God. And you know what I get to at the end of myself every freaking time it happens? You know what I say to him? The last thing I say to him in this moment of anxiety and birthing this pain before him. It's always, you are my life. You are my whole life. End of the story. And we're fine. That's, that's what's actually in here. But I gotta tell him, we're in relationship. I gotta give him all the other stuff. I mean, really give it to him. Not just like, give God your whatever. I mean, give it, give it to God. Give him the integrity and honor of that. Give him a chance to say something about it. We don't. We just go, I know what you think, because you didn't do it. That's not fair. This is a relationship. He gets to say what he feels too. How he sees it too. We just don't stay long enough in his presence because we just can't stand it. We can't stand what it's doing to us. Wait long enough and you will find him faithful and find him to be sufficient for what you need in the midst of this disappointment. Next, you're going to have to let go and lay down and that's going to happen pretty easy. Trust me, once you get to that point, you're just like, I'm potty in your hands. I love you so much. <laughs> you really are. It's not some... Whatever, you got to grieve as long as it takes. Do it. Be sad. I have been sad now for, what, two years, Heidi? I mean, I don't know. I mean, I'm not joking. Two years of grief. And the last year, it's just kicked my butt. I mean, kicked me upside the head. And I'm pissed about it. I'm like, last night, I was like, stop it. <laughs> I just don't want it anymore. Heal me miraculously. You know, I'm like, maybe someone will have a word. You know, like, please, somebody do it. And you know what? That's fine. God can handle it. It's doing something in me. It is. I'm not saying, well, I'm not like, oh, I just want it. No, I don't want it. I tell him every day, but we're fine. He's got, he's doing something. You know how I know that? Because I've done this before. He's doing something extraordinary in me, and he is worth this. And the grief I'm feeling, it's worth it. I'm learning how to give honor and dignity to my pain and to the loss of that person in my life. And that's worth it. And it's a good thing. So get to a place where you grieve as long as you need to, and then lay down. And you're going to have to lay down some self-pity which we all have a good dose of. You have to lay down some of you a hardened determination to survive. That is idolatry. And, and you know what? Look, I mean, I got trauma out my yin-yang. I do. But I have done such a, uh, a work in this space where I've had to say, I bless you, this part of myself that helped keep me safe when things were really falling apart. 
but I don't need you anymore. I have Jesus to take care of me from here on out, so you can go. You can go. There are parts of us that have helped us survive, and there's a place for honor for that, but there's also time and space for release of that. And that's what God's after. We also need to let go of our relentless demand for someone to see our pain, especially when we haven't allowed God to deal with it. You know, look at my pain. Here it is. It's on Instagram. It's ever, I mean, it really. But has God seen it? Have you given him the opportunity to see it as many times as your followers have? Lay it down. Let it go before God's presence. As we close, would you turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11? I'm going to read some words over you. This is a famous, um, it's my favorite book, I think, of the Bible. I assume a woman wrote it, just in good faith. We don't actually know, just so you know. I just like to assume a woman wrote it. <laughs> There's no good reason for that, I just think that. If you're like, I'm going to write my professor, good, do it. The author, she writes this. <laughs> just kidding. Now faith is the confidence in what we hope for and the assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what is visible. By faith, Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, Abel still speaks, even though he is dead. By faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. Because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. By faith, Noah when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear built an ark to save his family. By faith, he condemned the world and became the heir of righteousness that is in keeping with faith. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to a city with foundations whose architect and builder was God. And by faith, even Sarah, who was past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children because she considered him faithful who had made the promise. And so from this one man, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless on the sand of the, as the sand on the seashore. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been looking, or if they had been thinking of a country, the country they had left, they would have had the opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Shattered dreams are a part of our heritage, but so are the people who overcame them. People who looked to a better king and a better country. Shattered dreams reveal to us that we are not home yet. And that, my friends, I don't think is a bad thing. I want you to look, you don't have to, I'm going to do it, at verses 32 to 38. I'm just going to read this to you in Hebrews chapter 11. What more shall I say? I don't have time to tell you about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, and David, and Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life. There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. 
Some faced jeers and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. There's a reason the author of Hebrews says this, because the world wasn't. Often our view of life in the kingdom is that salvation always means deliverance through tough circumstances. But true salvation pushes us beyond that reality into something greater, into what will be and what will come. At the end of Ruth chapter 4, there's this weird um, ending to the whole story, and I just want to read it to you, and then we're totally done. And by totally, I mean we've got another hour and a half left. Ruth chapter 4, verse 11. It reads this, Then the elders and all the people at the gate said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the family of Israel. May you have standing and and be famous in Bethlehem. Through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. Now, if you don't know, this is a really weird wedding toast. I mean, the weirdest of all time. Don't say it at your friend's wedding. It's going to go badly. I just want you to think through Jewish history for a minute. Rachel and Leah had constant contention and barrenness. Tamar and Judah, very PG-13 movie at best in the story. Alex has taught on it before. Tamar was Judah's daughter-in-law, and she had sex with him without knowing that they had a son together named Perez. Not quite a blessing. So intrigued by this when I studied this. So I asked uh, all the scholars I knew, what are the elders doing here? Seems like a curse over Ruth and Naomi and this family more than a blessing. And they, it turns out it's actually something pretty extraordinary. Many say this toast is a prayer of brokenness. For the power to trust God no matter what life brings. It's a difficult blessing from the elder, but it is one that calls for resting in the arms of the one who is able to make a shattered thing, a beautiful and redeemed whole thing. Would you stand? I'm going to pray for you.